Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today's episode was inspired by one of the most charming listener letters (laughs) that we've ever received. Yeah, it was in response to our librarians episode, actually. Yeah, so we got this email from a gentleman named Kingsley. And I think part of the reason why I really love this letter is that Kingsley is just such a wonderful name. It is. And so I just, you know, had Kingsley like in my head (laughs) uh, as I was reading this. So Kingsley wrote us to say, I enjoyed your librarian topic. And I have to ask if you would cover janitorial work. It's very underrated on its importance. We keep offices, schools, and libraries clean, operating, and healthy, but still no love. Also, as a male, I don't understand why cleaning a home is woman's work while cleaning a public building is men's work. Doesn't make sense. Also, the janitorial stereotypes like being stupid and lazy is false. My pedometer reads 26,000 steps on average after every shift. Keep up the good stuff in all caps. If you would please excuse me, I have some toilets to clean. <laughs> Kingsley. That's a great letter. Oh, Kingsley. And and he's absolutely right. There are so many gendered aspects to custodial work and janitorial work. As you might expect. Yeah. And on top of gender issues, there's a lot of class and racial issues tied up with this as well. Um, and it reminded me for a lot of those reasons of our women in trucking episode, hmm. because a it was inspired by a fellow trucker. Yes. Who was driving down the road listening to stuff. I'm never told. Are you, you is, is the hand motion you're making? Are you driving or are you milking a cow? Uh, I am driving, but very wildly because uh, <laughs> I'm just swerving all across the road. <laughs> According to my pantomime of a steering wheel. Um, But in terms of trucking and janitorial work being really vital Mm -hmm. to our day-to-day lives and our economy, but also very invisible and devalued. Um, So I was really happy that Kingsley emailed us and brought this to our attention because there, yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, and and I've always held the opinion that you can tell a lot about people by the way that they treat janitorial and custodial workers. I, I also feel that way about wait staff, servers. You can tell a lot about a person by the way he or she treats your server. Um, and it just made me think about our bathroom here at work. Uh, we share a bathroom with a couple of other businesses in our building. And there are some days when you go in there and it's almost like destroyed in some of the stalls. And and I feel so powerless and helpless because I want to yell at someone and shake them by the shoulders and say, don't you understand that your mother is not here to clean up after you? Like there's another person who's a human being who comes in at some point. And has to clean up this insane mess you've made. Yeah, it makes no sense to me. And listeners, to understand the extent of this issue in our office bathroom, it's clear that there is someone in particular, or maybe two someones, because there are two stalls that always get it. Someone or ones uh, who go in and will... Sometimes take all of the toilet paper covers, paper covers, mm-hmm. and jam them into the toilet. Yeah, uh, yeah, it doesn't make, it any makes sense. no sense. Uh, and then in the very first stall, which 
always miffs me a little bit because that's my favorite stall. It's yeah, my go-to. It used to be my go-to. <laughs> this person comes in and wipes her boogers on the little tray attached to the wall. Yeah. And sometimes down the door. Yeah. And, and to, to further drive home how little sense this makes, that tray, you know, presumably you might set your purse there or your wallet or your phone. Um, it is literally above the toilet paper. So if you've got a stuffy nose, you need to blow your nose, you could do it very easily. But instead, our bathroom is apparently home to uh, a lot of people's weird compulsions. Yeah. Uh, booger smearing. And whenever the boogers are smeared, there's always uh, wadded up toilet paper left on the floor. And whenever we run into other women from other offices on our floor, one of which uh, listeners is very well known, but it shall remain nameless. Uh <laughs> I always try to like kind of stare them down and be like, huh? So you, uh, you leaving a mess? Did you go in that first stall? <laughs> I'm wiping your nose right now. I know. Uh, what our bathroom could use potentially is one of those, uh, bathroom attendants who hands out paper towels. No, we're going to talk about that though. Bathroom attendants make people so uncomfortable, including well, maybe, myself. Well, yeah, I also get very uncomfortable around bathroom attendants, but, um, I mean, maybe we need one, though, because it seems like uh, perhaps they might put the kibosh on uh, on some bad bathroom activities. Yeah, I don't know. I would just they would just end up having to clean up that woman's boogers. Well, well my hope is that someone's eternal presence there would discourage that sort of behavior. <laughs> oh, man. Someone has to be hired as a bathroom attendant because one woman doesn't know how to act like a decent human. Yeah, or two. What a bummer. Yeah. Anyway, I, I got into a whole conversation on the way to the airport one time with my Lyft driver about this specific <laughs> incident. And he was as mystified as I was. Dude, I printed out signs for a while because I don't know who it is. I would I would love to directly talk to someone who is doing it and shake that person physically and not be arrested for assault. Um, but what did these signs say, Caroline? Stop wiping your snot on the wall. And it didn't work. Yeah, it didn't work because God bless the janitors. They took the signs down because uh, <laughs> you can't put signs up in the bathroom. So I'm just as mad. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and listen, lady, if you're listening to this episode, stop uh, it. Stop it. Just Get stop a hold it. of yourself. To me, it's just, it's disrespectful on so many levels. It just doesn't, again, like it does not compute in my brain. But enough about uh, grownups who <laughs> act like babies. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about janitorial and custodial work and what's involved and just sort of some basic stats of the building cleaning industry. Yeah. So generally, janitors and custodians that you see at your buildings or your schools, they're in charge of sweeping and dusting, uh, mopping and vacuuming, maybe even carpet shampooing, which to me just sounds, and I'm serious, so satisfying. I would love to shampoo a carpet. Come to my house. Uh, floor waxing, window cleaning, bathroom upkeep. Uh, and it's typically contracted out by cleaning companies. And the contracts tend to go to the lowest bidder. So you can see where this is going. Uh, when you have a competitive advantage as one of these companies, it means that you end up paying your workers less. And there are no benefits to speak of. You typically don't get paid for overtime. 
And as a result of this, you are seeing increasingly um, the custodial workforce being composed of more and more immigrants because these contracted cleaning companies will take advantage of the fact that immigrants are often documented or undocumented are often the lowest paid um, people. And so they're like, oh, yeah, come come work here for absolutely nothing, uh, because the median income for uh, janitorial workers in the U.S. is uh, just over twenty three thousand dollars a year or around eleven dollars an hour. But it's very common. I mean, there are a lot of people who make their living off this work. As of 2014, it employed 2.3 million Americans. And if we look at the ethnic breakdown, as of 2013, out of all janitors and building cleaners, 74% were white, just over 30% were Hispanic or Latino, 18, just over 18% are black, and nearly 4% are Asian. And... The majority of janitors in America, 72%, have just a high school education. And that's one of the reasons why this work can be really appealing for people, because you don't need any formal training. You don't need any higher education. You can just step in and start doing it. And in terms of how we undervalue cleaning services, A, let's consider the fact that if you work in an office building like we do, uh, you don't even see them. You're not really supposed to see the janitorial staff. They tend to come in later in the afternoon or even in the evening once everybody has gone home. And while they're doing all of that invisible work, which is reminding me of, uh, you know, Cinderella's, mm-hmm. <laughs> the little mice, you know, who are like making everything so perfect and uh, sewing her dress. Uh, according to the Worldwide Cleaning Industry Association, 94% of people say that they'd avoid a business if they encountered dirty restrooms. So clearly this work is important. Yeah. I mean, you were helping retain customers and also maintaining employee satisfaction. I mean, listen to how much this woman's snot habits have overtaken <laughs> our life and my lift conversations. <laughs> I know. I've talked to my boyfriend about it. He doesn't understand it either. Um, yeah. According to the survey, 60% of retail customers say that a store's environment occur- encourages them to buy more. I mean, like, I literally tweeted at this shopping development here in Atlanta one time because the H&M was destroyed. Um, there, yeah, so not only are there clothes everywhere because people just go in and like, this doesn't fit. And they just, I don't know, are they just throwing things? Are they are they so happy to be at an H&M that they pick up a pile of sweaters and just throw them like confetti? I don't know what's going on. But there was also like trash on the floor and stuff like that. People are insane. Um so, so yes, I can, I can agree with the statement that the environment of a, a retail establishment is important. Uh, I have an H&M story to now share with you. Uh, first of all, I think that it gets trashed because the clothes are so cheap. Yeah. You know, people are like, oh, whatever, it's a dollar. Um, but the most horrifying H&M, uh, horrifying slash entertaining H&M that I've ever been in was a couple of months ago when I went to New Orleans for a wedding and just left everything at home. I'm a horrible packer. <laughs> and so we were in the French Quarter and I needed to just pick up a couple of things, cough, cough, underwear. And so I <laughs> went into the H&M. <laughs> and as you can imagine, like French Quarter... You can drink anywhere. Like there were clothes, 
for days. The line was out the door. There were just, you know, to-go cups with daiquiris scattered around. Um, I actually got stopped after I, I left the store because they forgot to take a security tag off. So I got chased by <laughs> by the security guard who ended up being very nice and we just laughed about it Um, because I'm sure if you work there all you can do is laugh oh yeah because otherwise you will weep (laughs) in in one of the dressing rooms you'll just lock yourself in there yeah and I get the impression like from you know my my brief interactions you know checking out and seeing the uh, (laughs) the clerks working there they were just like you kind of just have to be above it you know yeah it's a it's a nice exercise in in rising above. Yes. Taking a deep breath. And another setting out there where people's comfort level is influenced by their environment is fast food restaurants. I've been in many a fast food restaurant that is horrifying. Like the floor is gross. And so according to the survey, again, more than 60% of respondents said that they visit clean fast food restaurants. More often, all of this to illustrate how important and yet invisible the work of a janitorial staff is invisible because when something is clean, you don't think about it. Yeah, we take it for granted so often. Yeah, but when something's dirty and there's stuff all over the floor or whatever or all over the toilets or wherever, you do notice that because it it can be horrifying. So I have a feeling because this Work is so typically devalued and considered, you know, lower working class, very blue collar. There isn't a formal history of custodial services, at least that we could dig up. But there is plenty to unpack in terms of gender, class and race. And you kind of have to dig around for it um, because I feel like this population, even though there are so many of them, millions, uh, is so invisible that they often even just get overlooked in media coverage mm-hmm. and uh, within academia, aside yeah. from sociology, which we're going to get to in a second. <laughs> well, that's right. Um, so if you're looking at the gender breakdown, janitors and building cleaners, not including domestic cleaners, are about 75% male and a quarter female. And within that, most of those women are women of color. Yeah. And uh, just a quick note, since you mentioned that that's excluding domestic cleaners, uh, we are focusing just on the public building cleaning, like Kingsley was saying, where, yeah. uh, and, and the stats back them up, you know, three quarters of those employees are male. Whereas if you look at maid services, domestic cleaning services, that's going to be a majority female. But one one place, too, where janitorial services does come up very commonly is in conversations around the gender wage gap, because even within this typically low paid um sector, there is a noticeable gender wage gap. In fact, it is one of the top 10 widest gender wage gaps out there. Yeah, I never knew that. And I'm pretty sure it was, again, in our trucking episode, Kristen, where we mentioned the fact that when we talk about uh, harassment on the job, when we talk about women earning less money, we tend to focus on more white collar jobs. We tend to see trend pieces about like women in tech or women in STEM uh, not being paid as much, um, just as invisible as these workers can be in our day to day lives. 
their struggles with these issues tend to be invisible, too, when it comes to the media covering them. Well, and this fits into the broader pattern of the more masculinized the profession is, the more male dominated it is, the wider your gender gap is going to be. And this fits into a broader pattern that you see with the gender wage gap, where uh, the more male dominated a job is that the wider that gap is going to be. And so as of now, uh, janitors who are usually men earn 22% more than maids and house cleaners who are usually women because of the gendering of this work, which again, Kingsley talking all about that being like, what, what, what's up with this? You know, janitors work in public and indoor outdoor settings, whereas you know, your feminine maid's work is inside in that domestic sphere, your housekeeping. Yeah. And I mean, even when you are just looking at janitors, not looking at house cleaners versus public building cleaners, that wage gap definitely exists because typically the work is divided between heavy work and light work. And as you can imagine, the heavy work is things like, uh, polishing and waxing the floor with those big waxing machines. It's taking out heavy bags of trash, whereas the light work is things like dusting, vacuuming. I mean, I saw this um, in my last job. I was frequently at work late enough to where the janitorial staff came in and uh, had the nicest lady every night uh, who she would, you know, vacuum and dust and take out our small bags of trash. And when I went out to my car, I would see her male colleagues heaving the giant bags of trash all collected into the dumpster. And this is coming from a paper that came out in 2013 in Gender Work and Organization called Dirty Work, Gender, Race, and the Union in Industrial Cleaning. And uh, it interviewed a number of custodial workers in the primary uh, like service industry union. And they found that, yeah, like anecdotally, a lot of the women talk about how, you know, there is this binary gendered division where they stick with that light duty work. And the study authors write that the denigration of this work as being of low value is experienced doubly by women whose work as cleaners is more seriously undervalued than that of men. So to translate, what they're saying is custodial work is already considered dirty work Mm -hmm. uh, in quotes. But then you have that uh, even more diminished status for the light duty work because, you know, anything that gets close to domestic sphere duties, like a dusting and a vacuuming, uh, the more devalued that you're going to get. And I feel like now um, you could play a devalued and invisible drinking game because we've said those <laughs> words so much in this yeah, episode. Drinking goes along with having to laugh. <laughs> and that should also prepare you for the fact that there's massive problems with sexual harassment and sexual assault on the job. Again, hearkening back to our tracking episode where when women are doing this kind of work, it's often solitary, uh, late at night. They are alone and there have been so many reports of terrible things happening, but so many of these women don't feel that they have any sort of legal recourse to tackle the problem. Well, and especially if you're an undocumented worker, mm-hmm. uh, PBS Frontline produced a whole series on this called Rape on the Night Shift. And they talked about this case where 21 women 
sued ABM, which is the nation's largest janitorial employer uh, with about 65,000 employees. They sued them for failing to protect them from harassment and assault perpetrated by 14 male employees. And ABM ended up settling in 2010 for $5.8 million, not acknowledging right. as part of their deal that anything wrong, like anything constituting sexual harassment had happened. Yeah. And they talked to one woman who, you know, she she got this money. She didn't change anything about her life. It's not like she used it to move into some big house or anything. And she said, you know, I really have a lot of trouble spending this money because it feels dirty. Like I got it because I was raped, you know, not because I like earned it through working somehow. Well, and we had the same issue in our trucking episode where uh, the exact name escapes me now, but there is one infamous company, a uh, trucking training company where you have a series of sexual harassment and sexual assault cases that just keep happening over and over and over again, but they just kind of get brushed aside. And in this case, ABM, PBS reports, is one of just 15 U.S. companies sued at least three times by the federal government for failing to protect workers from sexual harassment. And and their response was basically like, oh, you know, I mean, what do you want us to do? Like, should we post a national guard uh, at the door where these women are working? Like, we have a labor force that's literally spread across the entire country. How are we going to monitor that? Oh, and of course, that's all rhetorical because there are, there are literally so many options to protect these workers. Anything from, you know, some type of uh, alarm device that you can set off that goes back to some central office or just um, maybe just better communication methods between workers so that they can alert each other to what's happening. Maybe uh, don't hire people who have been convicted of rape, as was the case with one of those 14 male employees who was involved in that uh, 2010 lawsuit. Yeah, and basically, yeah, they were saying that the the employees' backgrounds weren't, not that they weren't checked, but they just weren't chalked up as something important enough to take note of. So in terms of gender, then, we've established that this work is masculinized, but about a quarter of the workforce are women who are extremely vulnerable to even lower pay and obviously... Um, dangerous sometimes working conditions. I mean, in that PBS frontline piece, the women were talking about how really the only defense they might have is uh, wielding their broomstick or <laughs> or their mop. Um, so so that's a, the gender situation happening. If we look at class, just generally speaking, janitorial work is about as working class as you can get because, you know, it's usually conducted again, like after the nine to fivers go home Um and in a way, it's tabooed, regardless of gender. Yeah, because of that, quote unquote, dirty work, rather than viewing it as like, these people are literally keeping your environment clean and in some cases free from disease. It tends to be viewed as, no, you're getting your hands dirty. That's gross. Yeah, and also presuming that there is no skill required. 
Right. You know, that it's just, you know, anybody can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that emerged in that dirty work paper, which we should note was uh, based on the Toronto chapter of the Service Employees International Union, which is uh, the massive labor union that represents a bunch of service occupations, including custodians, and is the primary organization for custodial organizing and rights um, in those interviews. With some of those union members, the researchers found that even racism among workers, you have a very diverse workforce, but racism can uh, emerge between them and can impede organizing. But a common theme in aggregate is that they tend to resist the notion of their jobs as dirty, unskilled invisible and undignified um, and rather, you know, try to sort of elevate it and like take pride in the work that they are doing, even if nobody else will. Well, yeah. And that's kind of where the union does step in, right? It's not only organizing people and getting people to advocate for better working conditions, but it also has a role in helping people feel and take more pride in their work. And I mean, and that that can be a hard thing to do sometimes when you're up against those outside dehumanizing and othering forces. There were some people who talked about, um, you know, my my employer or my manager on my shift, you know, is is racist against me um, or they uh, treat me very poorly because they themselves used to be a janitor or a custodian and they escaped this work. Or they, you know, they they got a promotion or something and they just feel like they can treat me like a dog. And because of all of those class issues within and without uh, the sector, sociologists have paid a lot of attention to what's going on and how people interact with custodial staff uh, to say they're often ignored. Um, you know, a lot of times people will simply walk by a custodian as if he or she just isn't even there, like literally invisible. And this really started in the 1980s with Chicago sociologist Edward Hughes, who studied what's called the occupational ideology of janitors in apartment buildings. And we were reading about this in the book, Understanding Modern Sociology. And Hughes, in essentially tracking uh, I think it might have just been one janitor throughout all of his work cleaning out these apartments, um, found that the intimate details that this janitor could glean from people's trash produced a, quote, kind of magical power because he knew so much about them, you know, yeah. and also clued him into the fact that, huh, OK, these people might be employed in like higher status work. Um, but they're not really any better than me, this working class individual, because look at all this. Look at, look at your dirty homes. Look at all this stuff in your trash. Like, oh, dude. Yeah. So, um, I did a study abroad thing one summer and, uh, they, the school hired students who weren't going home for the summer to act as the, basically the janitorial staff for the dorms. And um, it was so embarrassing because here are all of these like privileged students at this very incredible university in this other country. 
Uh, and, you know, privileged students of all ethnic backgrounds, I should add. But <laughs> here we are, these jerkish American students, tr- like basically trashing our rooms. And I don't mean like throwing trash, literally, but like our stuff was just everywhere. And anyway, these these student janitors basically had to go to the head of the school who then had to come to us to talk to us about like, you can't just have your rooms destroyed. These are human people who are coming in to clean up and just like take your trash out, wipe your sink down, all of that stuff. Like have a little respect, you know, pick your clothes up off the floor so these people can get in, you know, don't leave trash on the floor, put it in your trash can. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe pretend like you don't have a magical custodial staff coming in to clean up after you. Right. Um, also, I'm just betting that one of those students is now working in our office building and smears her boogers on the stall doors. <laughs> it is not oh, me. Oh, no, I know it's, it's, no, it's definitely not you. <laughs> um, but the flip side of this class issue and also the racial coding of custodial work has led to women of color in particular who might have Uh, jobs, particularly in academia, in STEM, who are often then mistaken as custodians. Oh, yeah. Didn't they? There was a study. It's called Double Jeopardy, Gender Bias Against Women of Color in Science. Wasn't there one woman who was literally asked? She's in her lab coat and she's like literally asked if she has access to the janitor's closet or something. Yes. She's like, "Uh, no, I mean, I have keys to the office because I work here. As a researcher. Yeah, I mean, that wasn't an isolated incident for uh, Latinas, especially. They're often mistaken, like you said, even when they're wearing lab coats. And even during office hours. Yeah, just mistaken for the cleaning staff. And that reminds me of these tweets I saw yesterday on Instagram, funnily enough, uh, that Mike MIC News had posted of this... uh, African-American guy who said that his number one inspiration for like not putting up with racism came from his mom when she went to work and was like the new boss somewhere. And there's the first employee meeting, you know, the boardroom is set up. She walks in and the employees assume that she is the tea woman. Oh, and ask if she can make some tea. So what she did, like a boss, she was like, oh, you want some tea? Okay. She took their orders, went out, made the tea, brought it in, started the meeting, introduced herself as a new boss, and then fired all of them. (gasps) Yeah. Oh, that is amazing. Yeah. Like the ultimate clapback. Holy... I hope someone did like a spit take too with their tea when she fired them. Oh my God. I, oh, people check your assumptions. Yeah. Check your assumptions and your biases and your outright racism. And there, I mean, and those unconscious biases or conscious biases are pretty deeply embedded, at least according to a study that was reported on in the New York Times called Looking the Part Social Status Cues Shape Race Perception. So what these researchers did was show participants headshots of people, um, some wearing like noticeably wearing a business suit, you know, because you can see in a headshot like the tippy top of your outfit. Some are wearing a business suit. 
others were wearing a janitorial uniform. And they showed participants whose faces also in 13 different skin tones and asked them to just evaluate upon sight uh, what their racial identity was. So, uh, really regardless of the skin tone, the participants, anytime they just saw that janitorial uniform, were like, oh, that person's black. Oh, that person's black. Uh, that person must be black. Yeah. I mean, talk about those internal biases. Well, one little wrinkle in the study methodology that the researchers acknowledged, mm-hmm. um, was that since this study was conducted at a, I want to say it was like a Midwestern college, because that's just a very white place. Um, uh, there were mostly like almost exclusively white college kids uh-huh. evaluating these faces. So they were wondering what would happen if the results would change if they showed it to a more diverse audience. Well, sure. So this is a study of the racial biases of white students of white kids in Kansas. Yeah. Which I mean, that's that's. <laughs> That's a valid study, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would argue in general, especially for a lot of the stuff that we cite on the podcast, that you want more diverse studies, people of different racial and ethnic makeups, people of different ages, genders, etc. But I think it is very interesting when you do interview just white people. Yeah. Also, um, I, I cannot confirm that they were in Kansas and nothing, <laughs> and nothing against Kansans. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting to explore like white students. Yeah. Biases in particular. And also just being aware of these kinds of studies. If you are a white person like you and I are, yeah. it helps us keep in check of our unconscious biases, those snap judgments. Hashtag cool podcasts. Uh, those snap judgments <laughs> that we will make. Really just based on, on so little except for stereotypes. But up next, we're going to talk about how janitors have organized and said, you know what? Uh, we are treated really poorly and that's not okay. So we're going to talk about janitors and civil rights when we come right back from a quick break. So we spent the first half of this podcast talking about how pretty much everything is terrible when it comes to uh, our societal uh, stigmatizing and marginalizing of custodial work. And that might be painting custodians as helpless victims, which they are not. I mean, yes, they are in relatively low status positions, but that does not mean that they haven't recognize what is going on and take an action to change that. Yeah. I mean, we mentioned unions earlier and uh, janitorial workers have unionized to protest things like outsourcing uh, shady contractors and building managers. Um, and one part of the movement that is cited over and over again, whenever you read about janitorial workers as part of the labor movement, uh, and the civil rights movements in particular, um, is the janitors for justice movement. And so basically the term janitors for justice, that name was used for the first time in 1986 when Pittsburgh janitors, uh, used it during a successful protest. And a few years later in 1989, 
Janitors for Justice come to Los Angeles and they target the American Building Maintenance and Bradford Building Maintenance companies. And just three years later, uh, the Janitors for Justice movement comes to Los Angeles to target that company we mentioned earlier, ABM, American Building Maintenance. They also target Bradford Building Maintenance for not providing better wages and working conditions. Standard issue, positive effects of, of a union advocating for better working conditions and better wages. And we had mentioned earlier that uh, custodial work is largely absent in a lot of academia, but you do start to see in 89, UCLA in particular, really starting to focus in and study this group. And so they published a study the same year highlighting the bleak economics of being a custodian. And you might think, uh, yeah, no, duh, that's like a no brainer. But no, that's extremely important to validate yeah. the situation happening with these people, a lot of whom are being taken advantage of. Well, it was good timing for such a study because just a year later in 1990, there is a horrifying incident that happens that we see this tipping point in the janitorial labor movement in Los Angeles when LAPD officers beat immigrant janitors who were striking for the right to unionize in Century City. Um, those protesters were specifically targeting uh, the giant Danish-owned company ISS. As a result of this police violence, according to The Nation, two women miscarried. Dozens of these workers were hospitalized and 60 people end up Jailed. I mean, this is that's insane. That kind of brutality is crazy. And it served to galvanize people, not only other workers, but also just people who were reading the news. There was all of this public outrage that sort of pushed the Justice for Janitors movement and ultimately helped the Service Employees International Union organize more than one hundred and thirty thousand Union contracted janitors. And this is kind of a side note, but it is relevant to the situation going on today in terms of police brutality and communities of color. Because the reason why that public outrage happened was because there was actual footage of the police beating these protesters. And this is the same kind of thing that you see um, around the same time with the Rodney King riots mm-hmm. in also in L.A. because you have the footage, right. because people are being forced to see this. If it was just written up, even if they were just static photos, I don't know that it would have had as deep of an impact as actually seeing it happening yeah, because once you see it happening, it's hard to, I mean, it, it's uh, the same thing with Philando Castile and his girlfriend basically documenting everything on Facebook live. Yeah, I mean, it's like you you can't look away at that point. And, and it's a similar thing, too, of making these communities visible. Right. Well, and, and it wasn't the thing, too, that despite all of this violence, the next day, all those workers got together and decided to come back and strike again. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. remember, you have the police, the LAPD arrested 60 of them. Mm-hmm. And they would have gotten away with it completely if there hadn't been footage that leaked and the L- LAPD had to be like, oh, whoops, okay, we'll we'll let you go. And Janitors for Justice was like, all right, well, this this is the moment. And this is when it really starts to go more national. So you see University of Miami janitors fasting in protest 
and winning. Um, you also have uh, students who are supporting them as well outside of the food hall. Um, some of them also joining in the fast. You have Houston janitors winning an historic union contract, which is a big deal because Texas is a right-to-work state. And across the country, SEIU and the Janitors for Justice movement start targeting building owners and financiers, not just the cleaning services contractors that are beholden to them. They're going to the people who are really holding the keys to the power. Yeah, in other words, you can't ignore how badly we're being treated. You can't ignore us as human beings. And the fact that they were targeting, though, those uh, building owners and financiers was a huge deal because of uh, something that's termed the who's the boss problem, where it's like, okay, Tony uh, Danza always shows up <laughs> when you least expect it. Yeah, it's like getting rickrolled, yeah. but you just got Danza. Tony. Tony, Tony, Tony. Oh, no, the who's the boss problem is when you have these tiers of management between employees that are being taken advantage of, in this case, custodial services and the, you know, ultimate gatekeepers who are the people who are paying for those cleaning contractors to then come in. This actually recently happened uh, in New York at WeWork, which is a terrific startup all about, um, co-working spaces and they were trying to do the right thing and boot this corrupt cleaning service from their building. But in the process, a lot of people lost their jobs and it's part of the whole who's the boss issue where it's like, okay, yeah, there are issues with these cleaning contractors, but they're connected to much powerful people higher up the ranks. And when it comes to picketing and protesting, the who's the boss problem arises with uh, the fact that it is illegal to secondarily picket. So if you are, <laughs> let's use how stuff works as an example. Okay. So you and I are going to protest how stuff works, but how stuff works is owned by a parent company called Open Mail. So if I'm understanding my labor laws correctly, you and I can picket outside of the House Stuff Works offices all day long. That's totally fine. But it would be secondary picketing if we flew out to Venice Beach and uh, got sand in our shoes picketing <laughs> outside the open mail office. I see. Yeah. So uh, the campaign architect, Stephen Lerner, was talking about this in 2012 about how the majority of our work in justice for janitors was trying to figure out how to negotiate around those secondary boycott laws. So the fact that they were able to, first of all, get this very diverse group of people together to organize um, and also sort of come at the problem from multiple angles really speaks to how well justice for janitors was organized. Um, and I thought it was also notable that Stephen Lerner has since 2012 left the Service Employees International Union and is now working on a campaign to unionize bank tellers. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. Spreading the good even farther. That's right. And, and you know, you mentioned uh, bringing together these diverse groups of people around a common issue, and, and they succeeded because they had a multi-pronged approach. They didn't just use one tactic. It wasn't just picketing. Um, they employed, yes, strikes and civil disobedience, but also engaging shareholders and directly challenging other businesses and social and political interest as well. 
talking to them about their exploitive practices. And over at Bloomberg, Josh Edelson was writing about this recently, about how it was a mix of political, legal, consumer, community, media, and workplace pressure that they enforce. I mean, they're they're really going for it. And um, one thing that's sort of a side note is how, you know, a lot of, especially in L.A., a lot of these employees are Latino and some of the protest tactics are directly borrowed from um, protests and civil rights movements in Central and South America. And I mean, it is interesting, too, though, to look at the gendered aspects of these janitorial labor movements and membership in the union, because unions are historically masculine spaces. But in a lot of cases, some of these janitorial unions have become more female dominated. And there's been a lot of talk around the benefits of that or just simply the effects of gendering uh, of things skewing more female, for instance, a lot of people talk about, oh, well, women's natural like caretaking abilities make them more effective in these unions to organize people. There was one guy that we read about who was talking about how like, yeah, you know, men are men are too arrogant. Uh, they, they're cocky and they'll just stand up and go off half cocked. Whereas the women that I've watched in a lot of these unions are more careful and steady and they plan it out and they're able to hold their position longer. Yeah, that was coming up in a paper, uh, constructing union motherhood, gender and social reproduction in the Los Angeles justice for janitors movement, which really highlighted, um, how Latina women in particular in this union were able to rise to union leadership and also make not only just that gendered caregiving more visible in their union work, but also bring um, the impact of these work issues on families more to the forefront of uh, union platforms. Yeah. And the study, the study author writes, these women constructed a union motherhood that undermined the invisibility and devaluation of caregiving generally performed by women. Yeah. So next time you see a member of a custodial staff, you know, just assuming like, oh, you know, that's all you can do. Just just dusting and sweeping. Yeah. No, no, you know, nothing fictional person I'm talking about. Well, I think one person that can no longer ever be underestimated is Corey Menifee. Uh, in June of 2016, this Yale maintenance worker uh, was all over the news because he broke a stained glass window at Yale that depicted slaves carrying cotton. He used his broom to break it. I mean, people had been protesting this window forever and talking to school administrators about getting this window removed. And uh, he he was quoted as saying, I thought, I'm tired of looking at this. I'm about to break this. It's the 21st century. Why do I have to go to work and look at this? And that window was in Calhoun College, named after former Vice President uh, John C. Calhoun, who advocated for slavery, hence the stained glass. And yeah, like you said, students had been protesting it. Um, they were also protesting the very name of the college, wanting to get that changed. But I love that it just took Corey Menifee just getting so fed up. I mean, he himself had gone to college. He graduated right when the recession hit. 
Um, he got work as a substitute teacher and then he saw that, uh, you know, the Yale maintenance staff was hiring and it paid better than substitute teaching. And well, yeah, cause he, I think he was trained as a journalist. He went to, to work at a, at a newspaper for yeah. a little while, but we all know how well newspapers fared during the recession. Um, and now, uh, but, but he's another person who like, I, I hate that we even have to say, here's an example of a person with dreams. But I mean, janitorial work and janitors tend to be so invisible and dismissed. It's so easy to look at people who are mopping the floor and just say, like you were saying, oh, this person must not be able to do anything else. Well, sometimes when it's time to feed your family, you will take the work regardless of what your background is. Yeah. Well, and it goes to what Kingsley was saying, that idea that, oh, janitors are just lazy. They have no ambition to do anything. When in fact, especially in the case of Corey Menifee, it's the exact opposite. He so badly was just trying to make a living to support his family and he wanted to be responsible. And he, and he had kept the job for a while. He was like, yeah. it's good work. It's very steady and reliable. And he was initially fired after breaking that window. But once, you know, they got national media attention, Corey got his job back, thankfully. And he told NBC, I'm not an activist. What I did is not on the level of Rosa Parks and other greats like Martin Luther King. I'm just a regular guy who had enough and I broke it. Isn't that the history of so much activism in this country? I know. I know. I thought, Corey, come on now. (laughs) You are an activist, Corey. But then I thought, white girl, don't tell Corey (laughs) who he is and is not. But yeah, I mean, what I'm well, all I'm saying is that in this country, uh, across ethnicities and class and gender, it often is the regular guy who takes the stand. Well, and just such such an image that unfortunately we we don't have. I, or at least I didn't see any um, like footage of it happening. Um, but just the, imagining him just walking up and taking his broom and smashing that window. I bet it was so satisfying. Oh yeah. I mean, can yeah, can you imagine um, if there had been, instead of a racially based situation such as this, if it were gender based and there was like a picture of like a woman doing a stained glass window of a woman doing something and a woman, then you could literally have smashing the patriarchy headlines. And I'm I am here for that. <laughs> Maybe we need to get some brooms and smash some windows so we can just make we can make our own news, Caroline. Therapeutic activism. Although PS in terms of Yale and Calhoun College, uh the school said that they are going to leave the name Calhoun College. They've since replaced the stained glass with not uh, a slave carrying cotton on his back. But Calhoun College is going to remain um, Calhoun College as a reminder of uh, essentially how people can be horrible. Yeah, I mean, that's I get it. Like, I, I, I support the movement that's happening across this country at colleges to rename schools and colleges and buildings uh, from the pro-slavery people that they were named for uh, to something else, to some other person. Um, but I mean, I think it is a valid point of like, oh, yeah, we've got to remember how awful we can't lose that history of how awful we were to other humans. Yeah. Um, and before we wrap up this episode, this was something somewhat tangential, but 
came to my mind almost as soon as I started researching this, which is the restroom attendant that you mentioned at the top of the podcast. Because unlike custodial staff, restroom attendants are extremely visible. They're right there. You cannot avoid one. And they are the object of a lot of resentment. Yeah, I think because of that visibility. Yeah. I think it makes people um, uncomfortable. Um, but one thing that astonished me so much in the little media coverage and research that I could find about restroom attendants was that there was no mention of racer class. Because maybe I've just been to the wrong hoity-toity bathrooms, but I've only ever seen women of color who are restroom attendants. Same with me. And I think it's a similar thing for gentlemen's bathrooms. Um, And the New York Times reported not so long ago that there is no official headcount of how many restroom attendants are still around, but that they're still a staple in some upscale hotels, restaurants, also nightclubs and strip clubs, although those are more about crowd control, making sure people aren't just doing a bunch of blow in the bathroom and people can't get in, Um, more so than a fancy customer experience. But they talked to uh, the director of sales and marketing at the Waldorf Astoria, who said that their attendance add to, quote, that luxury feeling and helped, quote, create authentic moments for our guests, which I wanted to follow up with a question. No, he wouldn't. I'm I'm telling you, as someone who used to work in marketing, I'm telling you right now, he doesn't know what that means. Authentic moments. What is that? No one knows what that means. Well, an authentic moment of what? Right. Exactly. Of, uh, you know, some like old school servitude. Right. No, thanks. Yeah. I you can take that authenticity and pack it up. Um, they also spoke to the president of the Page Hospitality Group, who noted that uh, ladies apparently love them. <laughs> he said, it's a good look for a more upscale venue. If the bathrooms are disgusting and dirty, it ruins the experience, especially for women. Okay. I'm with you on that. Gross bathrooms are not okay. But um, I, th- <laughs> I just thought it was interesting that he uh, tried to sell restroom attendance as something that women just really love. And like, you know, I... And in the same way as I couldn't find any history on custodial staff, I couldn't find any history on restroom attendance either, hmm. because I'm assuming that it's a holdover from, you know, the British upstairs, downstairs, gentleman's butler kind be, of yeah. thing. But then once you get to the U.S. and post-slavery, they're almost always, especially in men's restrooms, like older Men of color, some of whom I like totally love their jobs. The New York Times talked to a couple of guys who have been working at their stations for years, decades, and are like, yeah, it's great work. I get nice tips, whatever. Um, but when it comes to people's discomfort, it's not because we're like, oh, this seems like a vestige of our racist past and present, but because they were creepy and because they don't like to tip. Like, why should I give you a dollar for handing me a paper towel? I can get my own paper towel. And while, yeah, I get that perturbed person, like, uh, that's not what makes me so uncomfortable about it. What makes you so uncomfortable? Because it's like, why, why is this, this, this feels like, um, a servant or a maid in my bathroom. Yeah. Like, I don't, 
I don't know what to do. I agree. You know, I become like awkward white girl who does not want to seem racist. Well, then and then I don't have money with me in the bathroom. Oh, yeah. Usually like I've left my purse at the table or whatever. So then it's like, ah, you I can't. I almost like want to wash my hands and then just walk out with them wet. Like, I'm sorry. Please don't expend any energy on me. I can't tip you. Well, there was even coverage in the Wall Street Journal um, mid-recession about how restroom attendants were making a comeback as, I think, a way to make people feel richer than they were. Mm. Yeah. So just, I mean, talk about lots of, you know, class and race issues tied up with that. Using people as tools. Yeah. Um, And it's just one of those very antiquated jobs to me that, it's just it's just strange to me that it still exists. Well, I think I think you're right to point out how interesting it is to compare the visible, the very visible, the unavoidably visible bathroom attendant with our nearly completely invisible uh, custodians and janitors out there and how we react to them. And I'm really curious to hear from listeners about all of this stuff that we've talked about. Uh, I have a feeling that there are people listening to this right now, who are cleaning buildings or cleaning someone's house. Um, so write to us and let us know what you think. Also, Kingsley, if you're listening, thank you for your letter, first of all. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. And please send us your thoughts as well. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, Kingsley, speaking of our librarians episode, I have a letter here from Stephanie. She says, I'm a Southerner living in Ohio, and I've just recently discovered your podcast. I realized that I wasn't subscribed to any podcast led by women, so I sought to remedy that, and yours was one of the ones I chose. Well, thank you, Stephanie. Uh, she says, I was super excited to see that you had a two-part episode about librarians. My mother, a black woman, grew up in a small town in Mississippi during the 1960s. She attended a segregated school where a black school librarian became a mentor to her. She learned all she could about librarianship with the goal of one day becoming a librarian. Unfortunately, she was not able to major in library science immediately after graduating high school. Her family was poor, so the only way she could attend college was through a scholarship. She was offered a French and English scholarship to a historically black college, so she accepted the English scholarship and minored in French. After earning her degree in English, she married my father and got a job as an English teacher. She taught for a few years, gave birth to my older sister, and then decided it was time for her to go back to school and finally earn her master's in library science. During her final year in grad school, she got pregnant with me, Hala, and after graduating, she almost immediately got the job at the junior high school she retired from. It was pretty cool having a mom librarian. She would go to professional conferences attended by authors, and she would bring autographed copies of books back for my sister and me. I have autographed books from children's authors Beverly Cleary, Stephen Kellogg, Arnold LaBelle, and many others. I miss my mother dearly, so I really appreciated the memories this episode brought back and the pride I felt learning that she was one of the few black librarians. I have essentially written this long-winded email to say, thanks for the memory. One more thing. My mother said that the students referred to her as the library teacher. She would gently correct them, but this correction didn't always stick. So thanks, Stephanie. Well, I've got a letter here from Jasmine about our sports boobs episode. And Jasmine writes, 
I listened to your sports boob episode and it made me remember something. When I was in sixth grade, I went from a flat chest to a double D and would get bigger before they stopped growing. I had a breast reduction at the age of 23, going from a size 36I to a more reasonable double D. But while I was in school, I ended up with a problem of being shamed for having bouncing breasts, but I wasn't allowed to skip gym, period. Going to gym was seriously painful and embarrassing until I left school, but I was never allowed to skip it. But I couldn't get a sports bra that fit me, and my parents could hardly afford any bra for me to begin with. So I ended up hating sports for a long time and still really dislike most sports activities. I can't afford proper support for my size, and it's so painful to do any sort of cardio. However, I've now found a sport that I enjoy, even if it does have its own boob problems. Here in my hometown, I practice Italian 16th century rapier as part of the historical European martial arts movement. It's a lot of fun, and who doesn't like stabbing people? For fighting, no one gets hurt, of course. Though it can be frustrating when you can tell the martial arts were invented by old men because some of the moves do not work if you have boobs of any sort. Often the female practitioners talk about how frustrating it can be, but we still have fun. Well, thanks so much, Jasmine. I'm going to have to look up Italian 16th century rapier because, I mean, it's true. Who doesn't love stabbing people? So, listeners, we want to hear your thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn even more about custodial work, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 